still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every Good morning, everyone. I'm assuming uh, everyone has had a great weekend with family, gained 15 pounds, and uh, uh, have lots of uh, wrapping paper to clean up and all of those things. Um, glad to see all of you here. I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of our number are away traveling, uh, visiting family, and perhaps we have some visitors with us today. Here on Sunday morning, we have been looking at the study of knowing God. And uh, we're, we're really still setting the stage for a lot of things that we're going to talk about. Um, but last week, uh, we began talking more closely at the idea of general or natural revelation. That is, the idea that God has revealed himself in creation, that if we look at the world around us, we see God. Um, and of course, we're going to affirm that, that point of view in our class um, but I want us to, to keep in mind that as we go through this class, while I suspect that most people sitting in this class don't have deep, troubling questions about the existence of God, uh, increasingly, we live in a world that questions uh, those, that idea. I read a, a study uh, this, uh, just recently about Australia, and they were pointing out that now less than 50% of Australians are convinced, for example, <clears throat> that Jesus was a real person. That Jesus was a real person. Now, uh, it, it wasn't that 51% absolutely don't believe Jesus was a real person, um, but less than 50% believed absolutely that Jesus was a real person. Now, what's really troubling about that, uh, more than anything, what's really troubling about that is that if you were to talk to historians, people who are studying the uh, historical uh, value of Jesus, whether Jesus was a real person, overwhelmingly, you would, you would be, find it very difficult to find an historian who, uh, who specializes in that particular part of history who would deny that Jesus was a real person. Um, usually the academics are the ones who are driving us into the ditch. But in this case, the academics affirm who Jesus is or, or that Jesus was a real person um, and even the circumstances of his death. So we live in a world increasingly full of unbelievers and skeptics. And so if you're going to have a conversation with your neighbor or coworker, it is much more likely today than in the past that you're not going to get to begin just with the Gospels. It's hard to begin with the Gospels when someone doesn't believe in God and doesn't accept the Bible as the Word of God. So what we're trying to do in our class is at least include some uh, ideas for further study uh, that will help us address and talk to the person who doesn't begin where you are. You know, 
when I was growing up, uh, you know, the idea of teaching the gospel was arguing with your denominational friends who already believed 90% or 95% of what you already believed, and you were just arguing over your differences. That's not what taking the gospel to the world is today. Um, so uh, I said last week, <clears throat> as we started talking about this idea of natural revelation more earnestly, and we talked about uh, how the, the Bibles or the, the Scripture talks about the heavens, how that's such a common thing that uh, David, for example, in Psalm 19 and other places that we looked at, pointing to the heavens. And we talked a lot about how the heavens are, in fact, awe-inspiring. And I suggested that what natural revelation is about as much as anything is causing man, causing man to have questions. Causing man to have questions. Back over in Acts chapter 17, um, we read that God made the world and all things in it, and he is the Lord of heaven and earth. goes on and says, um, since he, uh, he says uh, that uh, he made every, from one man every nation of mankind on the face of the earth, having determined and appointed their times and boundaries of their habitation, verse 27, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. So what I would suggest to you is, that someone might be taught about God and then they search further to understand that God. Or they might just look at the world around them and have questions. And in the pursuit of answering their questions, what they're really doing is they're searching for God. That God created a world that provokes questions. And that is the way the search for God begins. So it's pretty important to think about those questions. And in fact, we know that for thousands of years, for thousands of years, we have documented evidence of men working very hard to ask and answer questions about the universe. And that those questions often led them to the subject of God. The great Greek philosopher Plato is one of those who said a lot, wrote a lot, influenced Western civilization and its ideas of God and searching for God a lot. <clears throat> it's been going on for a long time. Uh, and and we, know, we can talk about Plato because everything's documented. How many, how many men over the thousand, you know, the millenniums have been asking questions that we don't know what their questions were or how they asked them or how they tried to answer them, but we just happen to know in the case of someone like Plato. Um, so I said last week we're going we're gonna to look at three questions, three areas um, of, of what I consider to be the great questions. And of course, there are a lot more of them. Uh, these um, really come out of a book, uh, a great book that I would recommend to you. I'm sure most, many of you are familiar with it. And it's a book by Francis Schaeffer entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. Um, it's a great book. Um, and, and he boils down the great questions to these three, uh, which represent three categories of uh, things we could ask in, in these areas. The first one is the question of existence or being, which is, of course, covering the area of metaphysics, uh, of the existence of things. The question of existence or, be, or being. The second one is, he describes as the dilemma of man or the subject of morality, 
If we look at men, and we're gonna, I'm not going to say too much about them now because we're going to go through and look at these individually, but the dilemma of men has to be addressed. Um, and I, I think that's so accurate when you think about you know, uh, these first two questions. You know, why are we here? How did all of this get here and why? I can remember as a young boy pondering those things. I can literally remember laying in the grass in my front yard on Loxley Drive in Macon, Georgia, and staring at the sky. Mostly I was looking for bunnies and horses in the clouds, right? But I do remember the conversation with myself, my thoughts of wondering about everything. And that was partly because I, I grew up in church and I grew up hearing some pretty in-depth discussions about God. And it provoked me to wonder about some of those things. The question of existence. But the dilemma of man, especially because when we think of man, I mean, that's the thing that is most personal to all of us, ourselves. Understanding ourselves, understanding our relationship to everything. Uh, so that's the dilemma of man. Now, this third one, uh, questions of knowledge, um, the subject of epistemology. Epistemology is the subject of knowing. How do we know things? Um, I'm not going to get into that, the, the, the subject of epistemology, uh, too much because it's, uh, it, you can really get off the tracks pretty fast, uh, at least I can. But it is the idea of how do we know things? How do we know that we know things? Right? But really, where, where I'm going to approach it from is something a little more fundamental, and that is, what is our basis for looking at the universe? What is our basis for looking at the universe? Um, there's a famous on this first one, uh, the questions of existence and or being, there's this famous question of why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? You know, that's the question behind that. Um, the, the dilemma of man, the questions are uh, the observation that we make that man is very different from other living creatures. Man is different than other living creatures, and we are aware of that. We are completely aware of that. How do we explain why man is different than other living creatures? And then from our perspective, there's the problem of man's sinfulness and questions about morality. How do you explain Morality. How do you explain a sense of what is right and what is wrong? And then under the question of knowledge, we're going to talk about these two worldviews. I said a moment ago that we're looking at how, how do we uh, begin learning about the universe? And the two worldviews are, and there's really a third that I'm not going to really talk about, um, but the two primary worldviews we're going to talk about is one is the worldview that there is no God. There is no God. So whatever you're doing and searching for these answers, God is not an option. Leave God out of that conversation. If you're going to ask these questions and search for answers, we're only going to search for answers in the natural world. And then, of course, the other view is that there is a God and that God is the basis. He is the foundation for understanding the universe and answering these difficult questions. So we're going to begin this morning um, with this question. The question of existence or being, the metaphysical question. Why is everything here? Why is there something rather than nothing? Um, 
And let's begin with, with this thought. You say, well, all you have to do is turn over to Genesis chapter 1. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And for many of us, that is enough. God said he did it. And when I look at the universe, it seems like God did it. And that is enough for us. So the question's answered. But like I said a moment ago, how do you answer that question for someone who says, I don't believe that? <laughs> You're not going to answer my question with your Bible. That's not, that's not going to satisfy me. That's not going to answer my question. Now, the goal in these conversations is, is at some point, it's going to lead us back to Genesis chapter 1. And we're, we're moving in that direction in this class. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And you say, well, we've been reading a lot of scriptures in this class. Yes, but if you'll notice, we've been reading scriptures where inspired writings are making their arguments from natural revelation. They're making the same argument. They're saying, I look at the heavens and they declare the glory of God. You know, it's an argument from, yes, it's found in the scriptures, but it just shows us that those who believed in God then looked first to God's creation to see the evidence of him. In Psalm 139, David wrote in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. So David acknowledges that his existence was from God. He says, I know that you made me in the womb you made me. In fact, if you read on further, he says, even before then, even before then, I was in your mind that I was going to be here. But he says here, in terms of his physical existence, he says, God, you formed me in my inward parts. I know that you are the responsible person for my existence. Well, is that how everything came into existence? Is that how everything came into existence? So the first thing we will look at um, in regard to this question is the teleological argument. And that is the argument, teleological simply is the argument that things have a purpose or a design. There are a lot of arguments that you can make. I mean, if you look at uh, the philosophy of religion, there are a lot of arguments that people have worked through uh, in order to take the physical universe um, and what we observe and see and make some sense of it in philosophical arguments. Um, and there's a lot of those. We're not going to look at most of those. Um, I want to focus our attention on this one because I think it's the most valid. Interestingly enough, it is utterly dismissed by much of the scientific community. Completely dismissed, the idea. I had a, uh, a discussion not too long ago. I actually meant to print that out um, for class, and I forgot to do it. Um, but I had a, a, a discussion on social media with a fellow who didn't believe in God. He was an atheist. And I was making the argument with him for intelligent design. You know? And if you think about it, most of what we have looked at so far where inspired writers were writing about uh, the universe and using, referring to you know, natural revelation, essentially they're making the theological argument. 
They're saying, when I look at the world, it is obvious to me that there's a God. Well, why is it obvious to them? Because they look at a world, everywhere they look, they look at a world that is orderly, complex, yet orderly. They look at a world that is clearly got design in it. And you don't have to be a scientist to recognize that. I mean, if I were over on the beach, walking down the beach, and, and, and this is an old illustration. I don't know where I heard it first. But if I'm walking down the beach and I look down and I see a gold pocket watch laying on the beach, you know something I n- never crosses my mind about that pocket watch? I wonder if somebody made this or if it just, the sand made it. I would ne- that would never cross my mind. I would never have these thoughts. Wow, how did this come to be here? I would look at this watch, and it would just be assumed without even thinking about it that someone made the watch. It's common sense. We look at things that are designed and intricate. You know, most of you don't know about this, me, but I happen to be kind of a watch nut. You know, I'm really into watches. And, and you know, I have this watch I wear on my wrist. It's, it's a mechanical watch. It has a little thing that when I move, it winds the mainspring, and the mainspring releases energy and turns all of these gears, and it's keeping accurate time. We know that things like that are made by someone. Now, if I were walking down that same beach, and I stumbled across seashells, and I noticed that some of them are in a straight line, and then I, I rotate and I look and I realize that it says help, that the seashells are spelling out the word help on the beach. Would I think that they washed ashore and just landed that way? And of course, seashells, a handful of seashells is a lot less complicated than a watch, isn't it? But even with these seashells, if I saw them outlining the word help on the beach, I would look up for the cast of Gilligan's Island. Someone put those seashells there. They didn't just wash upon the shore and land that way. We know that is impossible. That is impossible. So the argument then is, when we look around us in the world, we see examples of complex, ordered things everywhere. Everywhere. Now, I'm not planning to go through a list of those. I know it would be very interesting to do that. It's easy to put together those things. I just want to talk about um, a couple, of, uh, a couple of, of areas. Mathematics. I should never talk about mathematics. I spent my college career avoiding calculus. Um, I, I, I took as little math as I possibly could all the way through school. I, re- I regret that now, just to say that for anybody who's on that path. You should avoid avoiding math. You should, you should take math. <clears throat> but our universe operates on math. Our universe operates on math. Math is a thing. It's a real thing. It's built into everything. Math. It works. You know, we were talking about philosophy, or did you know that there are philosophers of mathematics? There are philosophers of mathematics that work out the theory of how mathematics affect the world. 
the material world and the non-material world because math is so pervasive. Uh, we look at design. We look at the world around us, and we see design everywhere. We see uh, in the cosmos. We see the cosmological constants. I think there's 26 now, but often when uh, when you're talking about the cosmological constants, it'll get reduced down to a list of 15 things. Things like gravity, right? And each one of these cosmological constants are precise. In other words, they are exactly what they have to be individually and in concert with one another. They're exactly what they would have to be for life to exist on earth. And that the minutest, up to a millionth, or a million of a millionth even in some cases, a millionth degree of change in one of those cosmological constants, and the whole thing collapses. Now, we could present a lot more about that, couldn't we? But if you know how to use Google, you can find all that information pretty fast. So we're not going into all those details. But just to say, the physicist, who in many cases, the most ardent uh, uh, enemies of intelligent design deal on a daily basis with some of the greatest evidence for intelligent design. And, and I'm going to share some, some quotes with you in a few minutes about that. Complexity. Complexity. Um, not planning to go into Darwin, Darwinian evolution very much. We are going to have a class uh, in a couple of weeks about um, whether or not science and faith are incompatible. We're going to talk about that subject. And so some of this will come up uh, again, then, but I'm handling that separately as a separate topic. But Darwinian evolution is collapsing in the scientific community. Not according to Richard Dawkins. Uh, Richard Dawkins still touts it, but in reality, there are great, a great many problems now with Darwinian evolution. That is the idea that everything exists and exists and has become what it is because there have been small incremental changes over a great long period of time that has produced everything that we now see. That's how you and I came from a puddle. We started in a puddle, but through small incremental changes over a long period of time, a very, very long period of time, not because there's science to produce that, but because the probabilities and statistics require such a long period of time for them to even say it with a straight face. But over a long period of time, there have been these incremental changes. But as science progresses, we're discovering so many things, like in the area of physics. There are a lot of discoveries in the area of physics, like the cosmological constants that which you now can measure and know, that are actually, rather than disproving God, support the ideas of God. And Darwinian evolution falls prey to that as well. A fellow named um, Michael Behe wrote a book, uh, I think in 2000, or 1995 or 1996. I have a copy of it somewhere. Um, couldn't find it for this, but um, he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. And Darwin's, uh, you know, uh, Michael Behe is a biological chemist, and he studies cells on the molecular level. And he came out and made the argument that what he was observing as we 
have more, greater and greater ability to look at, on the molecular level, at the structures and the machinery that exists in biology, that what he was beginning to observe was that Darwinism can't really happen. In other words, there are too many processes and systems all over the universe where there is irreducible complexity. So what irreducible complexity is, it's the idea that, um, take a mousetrap, for example. If you take a mousetrap, and you know, one of those kind, you know, now they have mousetraps that you're, you just set out there and it humanely does all this stuff. But the old-fashioned mousetraps where it just slams down on the mouse's head, you know, with the spring, you, you pull the spring back, you put the bar across it, and you precariously put the bar in the little thing there, and you perch some peanut butter or cheese on it. When the mouse comes and eat it, the spring gets knocked loose, and bam, it slams the mouse. If you look at a simple mousetrap, it has the spring, it has the staples that hold the spring on the little piece of balsa wood, it has the bar that goes across the spring to hold the spring down, it has the little piece that the bar slides under that holds the bar in place until something touches it. You got the wood itself. You have all of these pieces. What's interesting about a mousetrap, if you take any one of those pieces away, guess what? It won't work. It needs every single one of those components I was describing for the mousetrap to work at all. Take any one of them away, and it's completely useless. It doesn't work anymore. Well, now imagine your body, a human eye, but you can really go much smaller now. There are so many parts of the human body with interdependence on other parts for vital function to work. And that if you suddenly took any one of those pieces away, the whole function fails. It doesn't work anymore. You can't live. Right? Well, that's the opposite of what Darwinian evolution supported. Darwinian evolution supported the idea that little increments, little uh, changes over time, incremental change over time, produce these more, more and more complex things. I mean, think how, how many of those changes have to happen, how complex they would have to be, and how they would have to happen simultaneously, something that that we can really hardly conceive of happening at all, we would have to have many of them happening all at once. And the odds of that become literally impossible. But much of the world has accepted that that's how it all happens. But as science advances, as we can now observe inside of cells, the, inside of a cell that you can't see with your naked eye, inside of it, there are many machines operating. And those machines that you cannot even see are just as complicated as your eye. And they have irreducible complexity, meaning they couldn't function and do what they do for your body if we were to take away just one of the parts, like the mousetrap. Now, that's a crude explanation of all of that. But my point is, that information is out there. If somebody is searching for it, that information is available.
So I, I wanted, you know, now that we've talked about that subject, I want to take you back a few hundred years. Um, a Frenchman named Blaise Pascal, some of you probably are familiar with Pascal. He was a very uh, uh, respected uh, French philosopher, mathematician, scientist. What's interesting about Blaise Pascal and a couple of quotes that I'm going to read to you, they're, uh, I'm going to have to cut them down because they're kind of probably too long for the time we have. What's interesting about Blaise Pascal is that he lived in the century where two tremendous scientific inventions came about. They're related to one another. It'll be obvious. One of those was the microscope. The other was the telescope. So in the 17th century, suddenly scientists had the ability to see farther into space than they ever had. And when you think about it, men knew a lot about astronomy long before the 17th century. A lot more. It's, it's shocking what they understood about astronomy before we had, they had microscopes. But just imagine with that knowledge, but now they can actually see further into space. What a shocking thing that was. And Blaise Pascal said this in one of his journals. He says, let men then contemplate the whole of nature in her full and grand majesty and turn his vision from the low objects that surround him and let him gaze on that brilliant light set like an eternal lamp to loom the universe. Let the earth appear to him a point in comparison with a vast circle described by the sun. And let him wonder at the fact that this vast circle is but itself a fine point in comparison. In other words, he says, we are nothing compared to the sun. And the sun is nothing compared to the rest of it. This, this wonder that you can hear in his words, and, and there is no doubt that Pascal has looked through a telescope. And he is amazed by it. He says, but going beyond that, he says, let our imagination pass beyond and it will sooner exhaust the power of conception, the nature that of supplying material for conception. It's very hard to read what he's saying because he writes it. But he basically says, you will run out of imagination before you run out of the universe is essentially what he's saying. You will run out of imagination before you run out of the universe. He says, no idea approaches it. We may enlarge our conception beyond all imaginable space. We only produce atoms in comparison with the reality of things. And, and what he means by that, we only produce atoms, he says, we can enlarge our imagination beyond what we can even think of. And what we produce is tiny. That's what he means by an atom in comparison to the reality that the reality is so much bigger than our wildest imagination. And then he says, in short, it is the greatest sensible mark of the almighty power of God that the imagination loses itself in that thought. Now, I have a second quote. Um, the second quote it, it, I like even better because um, he says, he says, I'm... I'm trying to cut out some of this to make it shorter. He goes on to say, referring to this man that he's challenged to look at, the, at space, he says, 
Something equally astonishing, let him examine the most delicate things he knows. Let a mite, M-I-T-E, and he uses it kind of the same way we would use uh, the idea of an insect, something small. He says, let a mite be given to him with its minute body and parts incomparably more minute, limbs with their joints, veins in the limbs, blood in the veins, humors in the blood, drops in the humors, and vapors in the drops. Divide these last things again and let him exhaust his powers of conception and let the last object at which he can arrive be now that of our discourse. So he says, so when you've gone and seen everything you can, you've gotten it broken down as small as you can. He says, now let's talk about that. Let's talk about the things now that are beyond what you can see. Perhaps he will think that here is the smallest point in nature, but I will let him see therein a new abyss. I will paint for him not only the visible universe, but all that he can conceive of nature's immensity in the womb of this abridged atom. Let him therein see therein an infinity of the universes, which each of which has its own firmament, its planets, its earth, in the same proportions as the visible world. So what he's saying is, and do you doubt that Pascal had looked in a microscope? And he is seeing all these things? He says, you can't even imagine it. He's writing for people who will never get to look in a microscope. And he says, you will look, and once you think you've seen the smallest thing that there is, I trust me, there are whole worlds that are even smaller than that, each with its own firmament, each with its own earth. He means, and he means that, of course, figuratively. He says, in each earth, animals, and the last mites. So in each one of these new worlds you discover that are so small you can't see them, there's a whole world with its own set of animals, like our earth that we see, the visible world, he says, in which you will find again all that the first had, finding still in these others the same thing, without end and without cessation. Pascal is not far off from what we know now, what we can see. Our ability to look on the cellular level and see things inside of cells that if they were large and sitting here, they would look like some sophisticated toy we bought our kid for Christmas. But they're not even visible. They have to be seen with the most powerful microscopes, but they're still complex and operating the way we think of big things operating. So all of this, and it boggles the mind, right? So I want to close with a couple of quotes. I'm going to pick on my two favorite science atheists. Stephen Hawking. Y'all know who Stephen Hawking is, most of you. He passed away uh, just a few years ago. He was the scientist who was in a wheelchair spoke through a voice synthesizer, but he was considered one of the most brilliant minds of our day. Are we out of time? I'll begin class reading this next week. So, so next week, we'll begin with that, but then we'll move into the question of man um, and morality. The Lord is in his holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. 
If you live in North Central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence, peace.